We live differently when we are persuaded of certain things. And the reality is that we as Christians live in a good but dangerous world. Uh, We heard a little bit about that earlier from that reading from 2 Peter about how there are false prophets who endanger God's people, who threaten them and challenge them. The, The Bible talks about how in our lives we face the enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil. The world is opposed to the things of God, which means that the world is opposed to the people of God. The Bible tells us that the devil is like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then we've, we've got the indwelling sin that we ourselves are, are wrestling with in our own hearts. Almost everywhere we turn, there is danger. Danger that, that threatens to paralyze us with fear. But that reading from 2 Peter, if you remember, over and over again was making the point, but God knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to care for His people. So nowhere in the Bible are the people of God called to live in fear. Rather, everywhere in the Bible, the people of God are called to live in in hope, confidence, and joy. And the only way that we can or will do that is if we are persuaded of something. Brothers and sisters, another week of living in the wilderness of this world has gone by. And as a a new week dawns on this day, you need to be persuaded afresh that the Lord is on your side. That the Lord is on the side of His people. He is always for His people. He always has been, and He always will be. This is what we are reminded of in Numbers chapter 22. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles uh, to Numbers 22. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 130. 130. I think you'll be helped uh, by following along. And while you're turning to Numbers 22, allow me to remind us of what we've studied so far, or some of what we've studied so far. Uh, The book of Numbers, it finds its place within the wider um, context, the wider storyline of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. One of the major threads in the storyline of the Pentateuch is that God has made a promise to Abraham to bless him and bring his offspring into the land of Canaan. Abraham's offspring multiplied and became known as the people of Israel. God's promises to Abraham and and thus to the people of Israel seemed in danger when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God revealed His steadfast love and faithful commitment to His promises when He raised up Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the book of Numbers picks up perhaps about two years after the exodus from Egypt, and begins to follow the people of Israel through the wilderness as they make their way to the land that God has promised. God's promises once again appear to be threatened as the people of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness. God was faithful to lead the people of Israel right to the very edge of the promised land. But sadly, they refused to enter and rebelled against God. They were afraid of the inhabitants of the promised land. And this time, their mighty enemy was not Pharaoh, but it was themselves. In response to their rebellion, the Lord told the people of Israel that a whole generation, everyone 20 years old and up, would die in the wilderness. He told them that a period of 40 years would have to pass. And that their children, those 20 years and younger, would go into the promised land. Now, a a few chapters back in our study, we saw Israel's first high priest, Aaron, die. That was a signal of the beginning of the end of the older generation of the people of Israel. The torch, or literally the robes, of the high priest were passed on to Aaron's son, Eliezer. And in Numbers 21, the chapter just before the chapter we're looking at this morning, we saw the younger generation begin to make strides toward the promised land. The Lord granted them victory after victory on the way. But here in Numbers 22, we face another threat to 
the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants, we face the threat of King Balak. And this threat to the fulfillment of God's promises will be sustained over the next several chapters in Numbers. But today, we're introduced to the conflict between King Balak and our God and King. Here we learn that our God is committed to His people and His promises to bless them. Numbers 22 reminds us that God is committed to bless and keep His people. And while He may not lead them out of danger, He will certainly lead them through it. For He, has called up, for he who has called us is faithful. Moreover, there is no adversary who can curse the people that God has determined to bless. So brothers and sisters, as we study this chapter, remember that this is your God and that there is no enemy who can revoke, remove, or repeal His commitment to bring you home safely to the promised land of heaven. This gives us great freedom to live with confidence, boldness, and joy in the wilderness of this world. We're going to look at Numbers 22 in three sections under three headings. The people treasured by God, the man who curses for treasure, and the God who stands in the way. So let's begin with our first point, the people treasured by God. And as we do, read Numbers 22 verses 1 to 6 now. Numbers 22 verses 1 to 6. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. And they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Well, the first word of this first verse, not to mention the the kind of verse as a whole, reminds us that we're in the midst of a continuing story. We're in the midst of a story that continues to progress and we're marching toward a goal. But the tension in this story continues to rise. The people of Israel are making their way toward the promised land, the land that the Lord has promised them. In fact, they are just across the river from one of the first cities that they will conquer when the conquest actually begins, Jericho. The fall of Jericho is recorded in Joshua chapter 6. We're not there yet, for a king named Balak stands in the way. Balak is a king who is aware of his surroundings, aware of his enemies, and determined to avoid defeat. What is more, Balak is clearly an enemy of the people of God. His name literally means destroyer, so we might as well call him King Destroyer. He wants to destroy any hope of God's promises, and he is aware that Israel poses a threat to him. His presence in this narrative should remind us of one of the first ones who sought the destruction of God's people in the garden, the devil himself. King Balak, king destroyer, is clearly on the side of the first destroyer. And he is aware that an enemy is in his presence. But Balak is not the only one who's aware. The people of Moab are also aware of the encampment of the people of Israel. The people of Moab are aware, and just like their king, they are overcome with fear. The description of Balak and the people of Moab should remind us of how Pharaoh and the Egyptians viewed the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus. This same language of fear and dread are found. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, we read, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So filled with dread are the people of Moab 
and their king, that they seek out an ally in the Midianites. In their call for help, we can see and hear their fear. They are afraid that Israel, that when Israel does decide to come and kind of march through their territory, they will leave nothing but devastation in their wake. Now here we need to pause and see the blessings of the Lord to the people of Israel through the lens of these verses. The blessings that God has lavished upon Israel come off the lips of her enemies. First we're alerted to the fact that Balak saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Balak has seen Israel's military strength. In verse 6, this is cast in the words, they are too mighty for me. Balak even recognizes the people of Israel are a great many people in verse 3. And to underscore that point, he calls them a horde in verse 4. There's even a bit of hyperbole about just how many in number the people of Israel are. For in verse 5, we're told that they cover the face of the earth. They are a people blessed beyond measure. They are a people who have been wandering in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. They should have been a people who were depleted over the course of those years. But look, they are a people vast and numbered by many. Numbered in the many, in the millions, actually. And what we need to recognize is that these words coming off the lips of Israel's enemies are nothing less than an echo of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So since Genesis 12 is meant to come to our minds as we read these verses, these words, let's take a look at that passage. So keeping one finger here, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think that's on page 8. Page 8 of the Bibles provided. Um, in, in Genesis 11, just the chapter before what we're about to look at, the people from all over the earth have just attempted to build a tower in praise of their own name, and the Lord came down to crush it. Now in Genesis 12, the Lord begins to unfold His plans for making His name great, at least initially through Abraham, making Abram's name great, or as he would later be called, Abraham. So beginning, begin reading there in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you were to flip forward just a few chapters to Genesis 15, you would see that the promise of blessing is reiterated there in Genesis 15 through a covenant. God promises to give Israel the promised land after sojourning in Egypt for a lengthy period of time. And then just two chapters after that, Genesis 17, the blessings of this covenant are announced once again. This is a covenant that God is committed to keeping. And by the time we get to Numbers 22... We're well on our way to those promises being fulfilled. God has made Israel into a great nation. They've sojourned in Egypt and they've come out of that land. And now they stand on the border of the promised land. They are a horde and they cover the earth. There's just one problem. Balak does not view Israel as a blessing. And so he sets out to curse them. Now turn back. To Numbers 22. Again, that's 130. The Bible's provided, page 130. In verse 5 of Numbers 22, you'll notice that he seeks to hire Balaam. He wants to hire Balaam to curse God's people, verse 6. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, as we've just read in Genesis 12, anyone who curses God's people will be cursed. So, Balak has just described to Balaam the power that he does not have. He thinks that Balaam has the power to bless and the power to curse. But as we've learned from Genesis 12, that power belongs to God and to God alone. And we know how this story will end, even before it really begins. Because we know that the almighty, promise-making, promise-keeping God has committed to bless the people of Israel. 
Brothers and sisters, we know how our story will end too. It will end in glory. We know what happens in Revelation 21 and 22. We will live in the new heavens and the new earth, promised land of heaven, because God has kept his promises to Abraham. Abraham's offspring is Jesus, and in him the nations of the earth are blessed. Now that does not mean that we as the people of God, that, that does not mean that this life will be free of enemies, free of pain, free of grief, free of cross-bearing, or free of what feels like defeat. But it does mean that though the Lord may lead us through thorny ways, He will lead us to a joyful end. And that will help us to live this day in light of that day. As Martin Luther once said, there are only two days. There is this day and there is that day. And knowledge of what will happen on that day frees us to live with joy and confidence before our God. Now, having thought about how the people of Israel and now we as the new covenant people of God are treasured by God, protected by Him, Let's turn now and consider our second point. The man who curses for treasure. And really who this Balaam character is. Read Numbers chapter 22 verses 7 to 21. Numbers 22 verses 7 to 21. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the sons of poor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold. I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. So you, too, please stay here tonight, that I may know more what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have called you to come, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now, in these verses, we learn that Balaam is a suspect character. Uh, in, in the previous section, we learned that he was the kind of man that you could call upon to curse someone. But in this section, we learn that he is apparently the kind of man who will make you pay for those services. After all, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian set out with fees for divination in their hand. Now, our concerns about his character might be allayed a little bit by the fact that he tells these men he, he has to speak with the Lord about this first. But I'm not persuaded that our fears about his character ought to be calmed all that much, especially in view of how this story turns out. What's more, Balaam doesn't go to God. God goes to him. Did you notice that? Look at verse 9. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? God's coming to Balaam was rather confrontational, it seems to me. We already know from the preceding verses and Genesis 12 that the Lord is not fond 
of those who have purposed to curse His people. No, the Lord has purposed to curse those who curse His people. If Balaam were a true follower of Yahweh, if he were one who really listened to Yahweh, to the Lord, then he would have refused these men right away. Who are these men? What, what authority do they think that they have to make such a request? That's the tone of the Lord's question. Now, Balaam pretends to have knowledge of the Lord. But anyone who really knows the Lord would know that he has purposed to bless and not curse his people. We also know from the wider testimony of Scripture from the passage, again, that we heard read earlier in the service from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, that Balaam, he is grouped with men who are not to be commended. Balaam is grouped with men who are greedy, who exploit people with false words, blasphemers, men who are like irrational animals, ignorant, and those who have forsaken the right way. What is more, Balaam is not simply grouped with such men. He is actually the primary example for such men. For they actually follow in his way. He has blazed a trail. It is completely unsurprising that God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Don't you just appreciate that definitive statement? They are blessed. It's not a question. They are not cursed. They are blessed. You are you're wasting your breath to curse them. For there is no revoking, no removing, or repealing my blessing. Don't let Balaam's sending these men of Balak away fool you. Notice that he did not tell them that God said these were a blessed people. I would not be surprised if there was deep disappointment in his voice as he said, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Another reason why I suspect there was disappointment in his voice is that Balak does not seem to be deterred in calling after him again. Well, there's, a, there's a problem here. There's just a negotiation that really needs to take place, isn't there? Balak sends even greater riches this time to Balaam. He sends even greater men along with them. Balak promises Balaam everything. If he would only give him this, this one little curse. What a wicked thought. I, I will lift you up. I will honor you. I will exalt you. If you will cast others down. The idea seems so reminiscent of the serpent, of Satan, of the first destroyer in the Garden of Eden. Didn't Satan propose to Adam that Adam would be lifted up, that he'd be like God? If he would simply cast God down and rule himself. King Balak sends a second delegation. King Destroyer is seeking to do battle with the people of the divine king. There is something more going on here than simply the confrontation of earthly armies. This is one way in which this story connects up with the, the overarching storyline of the Bible. Satan has always been seeking to destroy God's people and to destroy God's plan of redemption. And we know that he never succeeds. The attempt at destruction also comes through ordinary, earthly, but violent means. Herod tried to do it in the opening of Matthew's Gospel with the killing of baby boys. The Pharisees and Roman authorities tried to do it with the killing of Jesus on the cross. But let's be clear, though they try, they never succeed. After all, the Apostle John told us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What is being set up here in Numbers 22 is the conflict that will unfold in the following chapters between the one true God and the false gods that Balak hopes to call upon through Balaam's divination. When these new men with new money turn up to Balaam's door, he invites them in again. He answers them with words that sound good. But upon deeper reflection, we should ask ourselves, how could he even entertain such an offer? How could he even entertain such a proposal to curse the people that God has already definitively said are blessed? 
how could he entertain an offer from King Destroyer when the divine king, God, has already told him no? Verses 20 and 21 are surprising. And we must read them and the verses surrounding them with great care for to understand what the Lord is saying to Balaam. Read verses 20 and 21 again. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them. But only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. First note once again that God came to Balaam. This is something that we're going to see in the next section as well. Balaam has no knowledge of God apart from God revealing himself to Balaam. Balaam is a man who is blind to God because he does not truly know him. He does not recognize the glory and authority of God. He does not see the seer. So ironically, does not see that God is worthy to be obeyed over any and every man on the face of the earth. He does not see and treasure the pleasure of God as he ought. Instead, he values the treasure of men and their pleasure in him. Second, notice that this encounter with the Lord ends differently than the previous encounter. Previously, in verse 13, Balaam at least reported half of the truth. Balaam reported to the men of Balak that he could not go with them. In this encounter, Balak, Balaam doesn't report anything. We're simply told that Balaam arose in the morning, he saddled his donkey. He doesn't tell the men from Balak, Hey guys, guess what? I've got, I've got great news. The Lord said I could go with you. I just have to do what he says. How would that really have gone over with them? No, that's the problem. He's going to do what Balak says. His departure, his going on this journey, is explicitly against what the Lord has already said. You may not go. Now perhaps you think to yourself, but, but Mike, uh, doesn't the Lord say in verse 20 that he can go with them? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, that's what the Lord said, and some scholars read that verse plainly as it stands, as the Lord giving Balaam permission to go. But the Lord becomes angry with Balaam as he goes because he's, he's going with motivations that were sinful. I think this is a legitimate reading, legitimate possible reading of the text, even a likely reading. Uh, but I argue, and other scholars argue, um, that this is perhaps not the most likely reading. Uh, you know from your own personal conversations and life experience that your words, uh, through careful inflection, can communicate something completely contrary to their content. And that you are to take that contrary meaning as the message you are to hear. So, for example, if one of my children were to ask me, Dad, can I go play in the street? And I replied in this way, Yes, I want you to go and play in the street. Absolutely, that's what I want for you, to go and play in the street. Now, you know that from my vocal inflection that I'm being sarcastic and I don't actually want my child to go and play in the street. I love my children and they're not to go and play in the street, to be clear. No, we, those words have a tone and they communicate something. The surrounding context is the vocal inflection that we need to hear. The surrounding context consists of at least three major clues. First, the Lord's explicit command there in verse 12. Second, the Lord's explicit anger at Balaam's going in verse 22. There we read, but God's anger was kindled because he went. And the third contextual clue is the explicit humiliation of Balak's delegation. The second delegation is to be viewed in the same light as the first. For they're called by the same term in verse 20. They're called men. The elders of Moab and of Midian, they were also called princes and merely men in verse 9. And the princes of Moab are merely called men in verse 20. They're to be viewed in the same light. What is set before Balaam is really a choice. Are you going to obey men? If the men have called you, well, and by all means, who, I mean, who am I to stand in your way? Go ahead and go with them. Now, who are these men? 
Are you going to side with King Destroyer? Or are you going to side with the Divine King? Whatever you do, you will do what God says to do. This type of construction is actually rather familiar in the Old Testament. And I think would have been naturally understood by those who first heard the text read. What we're reading here is something akin to Joshua's words in Joshua 24. When he famously said, choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua was not actually presenting a choice before Israel. Joshua would never have wanted Israel to think, oh, okay, I, I guess I can go back to the old gods. Or uh, I, I can follow Yahweh. I can go back to the Canaanite gods. Or I can follow Yahweh. And that actually wasn't the choice that Joshua presented Israel with. In Joshua 24, verse 15, we read, And if it is, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve. Now here comes the choice Joshua gives them. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Joshua doesn't say, you may choose between the Lord and some other foreign god. No, he says, choose between this foreign god, that foreign god. Joshua is saying, if you're going to reject Yahweh, then choose between the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods and the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Joshua is saying to Israel, look, if you want to be foolish, then go ahead and be foolish. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve the Lord. What Israel was hearing from Joshua, there was no other choice. Of course they're to follow and serve the Lord. What Balaam was hearing was not permission to go, but a call to choose between divination and the divine creator. He was being called to choose between the treasure and pleasure of man and the pleasure of God. Between fearing man and fearing God. Seeking man's honor or seeking God's honor. And we know what Balaam chose. He chose the treasure and pleasure of man. He is a man who will curse for treasure. In fact, Balaam is going to continue to choose the side of King Destroyer rather than the divine king in the next several chapters. But what we will see over and over again is that God overrules his attempt to curse for the blessing of his people. Now, as readers of God's word, and especially as those who read it in faith, we ought to side with the divine king over and against King Destroyer. But the truth is, is that too often we're a lot like Balaam. Too often we're consumed with a desire for wealth. Too often our words reveal that we care more about what the world thinks of us than what God thinks of us. Do you all remember or know of that BuzzFeed video that came out recently uh, with Christians uh, saying, or people uh, identifying as Christians saying, uh, it was this phrase they would say, I'm a Christian, but, and then they would make this statement. Um, here, here's, here's just a, a few of those kind of statements from that, that video. I'm a Christian, but I'm not unaccepting. I'm a Christian but I'm not closed-minded. I'm a Christian, but I'm not judgmental. Now, I want to be charitable toward those in the video, but it strikes me that these statements, or these are the kind of statements that are mostly aimed at seeking the world's good opinion. Why else have a video promoting Christianity and not the Christ of Christianity? Now, I think that if we're real honest with ourselves, we might be tempted to say some of the things in that video. Some of the statements that I just read. We might be tempted to say those kinds of things. We're standing at the water cooler at work or at the bus stop with our neighbors or, or at a neighborhood picnic, block party. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we have the same tendency to want the world's approval I mean, why else would Jesus address it in the Gospels? 
Fear God, not man. We all struggle with seeking the, the pleasure of the world and seeking man's good opinion. Brothers and sisters, let's remember that in Jesus Christ, the Father is well pleased with us. In Jesus Christ, we have all the approval we need and all the approval that we should want. Let's be bold and faithful and joyful with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's be Christians who say, I'm a Christian and there is such a thing as sin. I'm a Christian and I believe that the Bible is totally trustworthy and true. I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus is the Savior. Would you come and read about Him with me in the Bible? Would you come and learn about Him and who He is and how wonderful and glorious and gracious He is? Let's pray that God would give us an increasing passion to be people who forsake the world's pleasure and rest in the pleasure of God and so do His good will. Let's turn now and consider our, our third point. The God who stands in the way. This is what we see in Numbers 22, verses 22 to 41. Is that God stands in the way of those who seek to curse His people. Read, read Numbers 22, beginning of verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because He went. And the angel of the Lord who took His stand in the way as His adversary... Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing away with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, on the border formed by the Arnon, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, 
Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. In many ways this narrative speaks for itself. It is undoubtedly clear that the Lord is opposing Balaam's journey to curse the people of Israel. A people who in the Lord's sight are blessed. This scene begins with a silent struggle between Balaam and his donkey. It's a humorous scene because we know and see what the donkey knows and sees. The angel of the Lord standing his way to oppose Balaam. It's, it's humorous and ironic that a supposed seer cannot see while a donkey can. It's an embarrassing scene for Balaam because if he cannot control his donkey, how can he be expected to control the future of a nation through an evil curse? What does Balaam's donkey see? An angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, the last time we saw an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in his hand was just after Adam sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, we read, He, the Lord, drove the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. An angel was set outside the Garden of Eden to oppose anyone who attempted to make their way into God's presence. And here we see Balaam on the road in opposition to God and his people. Balaam was so angry with his donkey that he wanted to kill her with a sword. But what he didn't recognize was that this donkey saved him from being killed with a sword. Balaam doesn't see this until the Lord speaks through the donkey and he talks back to the donkey no wonder Peter said he was a mad prophet just has that look about him perhaps Balaam he doesn't see this the Lord speaks to the donkey and he reveals himself we who believe in the God of the Bible have no problem with the donkey speaking because God is the God of creation he is the author of creation. He has authority over what he has made and he can do with it as he pleases. And here he is clearly pleased to speak through a donkey, even though it is not his ordinary means. This is an extraordinary event. So I would not encourage you to go out to your local farm and look a donkey in the eyes and expect him to speak to you. That's just weird. Don't do that. What's happening with the donkey foreshadows what will happen with Balaam. Balaam is the donkey that the Lord will use to speak his word. And the Lord is opening his eyes to see that too. That's part of the purpose of these events. Part of the purpose of this encounter with the donkey and the angel is to drive home the point that Balaam cannot do what he has purposed to do in his heart. To curse the people of Israel. Unlike everyone else, what comes out of his mouth will not reveal what is in his heart. The Lord, for the blessing of his people, is going to overrule Balaam's curse with blessing. The Lord had to, as verse 31 makes clear, open the eyes of the seer to see this. The angel of the Lord even confronts Balaam with his sinful mistreatment of his donkey. He once again tells us that he is opposing Balaam because his way is perverse. Let's be clear about what is being said by this angel in verse 32. He is saying that Balaam's actions are sinful and contrary to God's revealed will. Remember, according to verse 12, God's revealed will is that Balaam not go and curse the people of Israel. Admittedly, what we're seeing, what we're also seeing revealed for us in this passage is that God planned to use Balaam's sin for Israel's blessing. At the beginning of verse 34, we might think to ourselves, okay, perhaps Balaam is getting it when he says that he has sinned. But by the end of the verse, we know that he's still blind. After all, he's, he says that he, he'll turn back if, if it's evil in the Lord's sight. If this is a problem, what, what do you mean if? You've been told, you've just been told by the angel of the Lord two verses earlier that your way is not just evil, but perverse. In the original language, the word for perverse is actually much stronger than the word that Balaam uses for evil. It's almost as if Balaam's kind of trying to downplay the situation. 
as though he, you know, I simply just made a mistake. So I'm sorry about that. Should, should, I, should I go back? He did something more than make a mistake. He made a willful decision to go with the king bent on the destruction of the people of Israel rather than with the king committed to the blessing of the people of Israel. Perhaps we should read what the Lord says in verse 35. Is the Lord giving him up to his sinful passions? Like we read about in Romans chapter 1. Balaam is committed to going with the men rather than with God. Did you notice it's kind of his default position? I'm going to go, but you know what? If this is a problem, I'm open to considering another option. It's his default position to go where the Lord has told him it's perverse. And the Lord gives him up to his own wickedness. Sometimes the Lord in his common grace restrains the evil of men. And sometimes he gives them up to their evil for their own destruction. And the Lord is also forcefully reminding Balaam that he will only speak what the Lord puts in his mouth. Indeed, by the time he gets to Balak, he seems rather resentful that he doesn't get to say what he wants to say. And that's going to prevent him from receiving the honor and riches that he really wanted from Balak. Though it seems to be dawning on Balaam that he will not get to say what he wants, he still goes with Balak. He goes with the king who has purposed to destroy God's people through Balaam's curse. He comes and goes when, to Balak when he's called. He, he appears to be at his disposal. We're having a feast. You, you come on over now. And he comes. Is he listening to the right king? We know in the end that he will only do what God wants. Now, if you feel like there is tension here, then that's okay. Because there is tension here. God does allow human actors to carry out their sinful will contrary to his revealed will. And you know what? God is so sovereign so holy, so mighty, and so glorious that He can use their sinful actions to bring glory to Himself and to bless His people. As a friend of mine frequently says, God rules over evil, and He overrules evil for His glory. And He does it all without being responsible for evil. That is exactly what happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 tell us that Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And that that was a sinful act according to the definite plan of God. It's contrary to His revealed will to murder innocent people. It was wrong for Jesus to be murdered. It was against God's law, against His revealed will. But it was the means that He planned to use and redeem and save sinners like you and me, people who murder others in our hearts through anger. Now, if you have a problem with this tension, uh, then I want to take that seriously. I'd love to talk with you about it. But frankly, at the end of the day, we have to let God tell us who He is and what He does, rather than constructing ideas of who we might like God to be. We have to let God reveal Himself to us. And what is He revealing to us? He is revealing to us that though our enemies are dead set against us, that He is for us. Though the world, the flesh, and the devil are in hot pursuit, they can do nothing but what He permits. He is in control. And you want Him to be in control. For this is how He has accomplished our salvation. The truth is, is that we are all enemies of God apart from Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all been God's enemies. Not merely seeking to curse His people, but to curse Him. We have all declared by our sin that He was unfit to rule. Sin is nothing other than rebellion against God and His rule. It is choosing to live our own way rather than His. We're going to go down our own path instead of God's path. Where, we have, where He has said no, we will often go. 
The truth is, is that we actually deserve to be cursed by God. And He has the power to do it. We, like Balaam, have been blind to His presence in our lives. But friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I pray that He would give you eyes to see. I pray that He would give you eyes to see that in His love, He sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that you and I have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Where you and I have acted like Balaam and gone against the direct word and command of God, Jesus did not. He was happy to obey. He even obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the Bible says that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And that is exactly what happened to Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. Instead of letting sinners like you and me be cursed by God, Jesus took the curse for all of those who would ever turn from their sin and believe in Him. He died, but He did not stay dead. No, three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and cursed death on behalf of sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls all men, women, and children to come to Him in faith. To turn from their sins and to believe in Him. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus. Believe that He stood in your way and endured the flaming sword of God's wrath on the cross for you. Believe that He was raised from the grave. Believe that He is calling you to be a part of the people that God is pleased to bless and call His treasure and give eternal life. And if you want to know more about what it means to come to Jesus Christ in faith for salvation, please come and find me at the door after this service. I'd love to talk to you about that. There's nothing more important you can think about this morning than this good news. We should conclude. In Numbers 22, we have seen that our God loves us. That He is committed to His people. Committed to His promises to bless and keep them and to make His face to shine upon them and to give them peace. No purpose to curse, no power of hell, and no scheme of man can withstand His divine determination to do us eternal good. Far from enemies standing in our way, He stands in their way from bringing eternal harm on our souls. As the Puritan minister Thomas Brooks once said, God hath in Himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Praise God that He is for us. May we live for Him. Let's pray together.